gospel require of us? It's a question for this morning. What will the gospel require of us? You see, what it requires is that we become lowly, humble servants, just like Jesus Christ. But before we, we say, sign me up, pastor, we should consider what it means, this life of servanthood. Look at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So there they were. On the road going up to Jerusalem. You see, up until this point, uh, Jesus has been making the journey towards Jerusalem, but, but nowhere in the Gospel of Mark has this been where he said he was going. Here he makes it clear. Notice from verse 32. They're on the road. They're going to Jerusalem. Who's out in front? Jesus. Jesus was walking ahead of them. His face was set for the destiny. Now just, just imagine here with me for a moment. You were on death row. Making your way. You've had your final meal. And they're taking you to the execution chamber. What would your face look like? What emotions would rise to the surface? Would you face it head on? Would you whimper? Would you cry out? You see, Jesus was on his way to his own death. And Isaiah, as Isaiah says, he set his face like flint. No doubt Jesus had in his mind Isaiah chapter 50. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, I have not been humiliated. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. And I know I will not be put to shame. This is Jesus Not in the back of the crowd, not in the middle of the crowd, but out in front, blazing the trail to Jerusalem. He leads the way. And notice, this makes them nervous. He knows where he is going. He knows what will happen to him, but but they are, quite frankly, they're they're disciples. And so, like us, they, they just really don't get what's going on here. They watch Jesus in amazement and in fear even though they have no idea what's going to happen and what awaits him. But yet Jesus knew. He knew fully what was awaiting him. He considered the cost, even as others misunderstood what was about to happen. Know for a moment, Christian, if you follow Christ, like like Jesus already knows what's going to happen to you. But this should cause in us, not this uh, fearfulness, but this should encourage us. This should embolden us to walk fully head on into whatever the Lord has ordained for us, just as Jesus did. You see, we must consider, we must think of the cost of servanthood. This is what he calls us to. All Christians everywhere of all time have always been called to be a servant of Jesus. Jesus knew where he was going. He knew exactly 
what await him. Listen, he knows exactly what awaits you on your path. You see, privately, with the 12, Jesus then begins to provide this detailed and precise prophecy of what was about to come. You see, theologians will argue like, well, you know, Mark must have, Jesus must not have really have said this because all this uh, it actually lines up pretty well. If you read the Gospel of Mark, what, what Mark just did here in chapter 10 is he laid out, if you will, an itinerary of what was about to happen. And so, you know, scholars will say, well, like, Jesus must not have really said this because how could he know? But listen, this is where understanding who Jesus is plays massively important into how you read the scriptures. Because if Jesus knows everything, and he does, and he did, then he would know exactly what was awaiting him. And he could tell you with precisely what would happen, just as he did. His, his words Reflect the Psalms and Isaiah. Uh, this idea of the, the mocking of the righteous sufferer or the suffering servant of the Lord. See, so there's eight things here in this passion, right, and in his mission that in verses 33 and 34 where God sovereignly and providentially has laid out the road that Jesus Christ will walk. Listen, the plan that God himself will accomplish. Listen, it's no different with us. You see, God orchestrates the steps of our lives down to the final detail. Listen, when you take your last breath, God is not surprised. He is not caught unaware. He knows. That's why it's so important for us to understand that we shouldn't waste any breaths. You see, that with God, there are no accidents. There are no surprises. Listen, family and friends may not understand you and your walk with Christ like, one of the things that I pray about the, the young people in this church, right? So mom and dad, email me afterwards, that's fine. But, like, one of the things I pray is that, that they would abandon all the y'all's dreams for them. Like, all the young people in this building, like, like in this room, like, like, mom and dad, you know what they've been praying for you since you were a baby? Get married to a godly person. I, don't, I, don't, I, I agree with that. Get an education. Get a nice job. Have a nice family. Sounds good. We should pray for those things. But listen, I'm praying for something greater. Here's what I'm praying for, for the young people of this church. I'm praying that God would raise up young men and young women and use as arrows to shoot into the parts of the world that have never heard of Christ. To shoot off into areas where it's actively against laws of the nations to preach Christ. I'm praying this on the young people of this church, that God would raise up godly men to take on the mantle of ministry. Now listen, I don't know if you've seen like our meeting minutes, but I don't get paid a whole lot up here. Right? So for me to pray like, God, would you actively raise up young men to become pastors and, and leaders of churches is foolish for your parents to understand. Oh, that God would actually do that. God has a plan for your life. This is true. Like, the whole world actually believes this. And the thing is, they just package it up and sell it weirdly. Like, like God doesn't want anything bad to happen to you. Or that, that all God wants for your life is for you to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. Listen, it's a, it's, that's a lie. If you've read Jesus' words, he says, no, no, no. You will suffer as I have suffered. Count it all joy, brothers, when they persecute you. This is God's plan for our lives. Down to the last detail, down to the last breath, down to the last beat of your heart. He knows it all. He's planned it all. Jesus 
was sent here to serve. He sends us then to serve. We should also consider and think about the challenge of servanthood. You see, being a servant doesn't come easily for anyone in this room. It doesn't. Especially for those who have been trained to lead. And especially of those who dream of being leaders. Of course, there's this, this battle that we must engage with in the flesh. You see, there's this voice in our head from the fallen sinful, nation, uh, from the fallen sinful nature that can whisper almost daily to us things like this. The Lord takes care of those who take care of themselves. Just enough truth in there for like, that sounds biblical. This sounds like it's from the scriptures, but just enough heresy to completely wreck our lives. Right, look at these, look at these two cats here in, in, in verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, Jesus, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask for you. Now listen, if you've got children, they come up to you and they say, Hey, listen, Mom, Dad, uh, whatever I'm about to say, just say yes. Probably uh, take a page out of Jesus' book. Look what he says. He says, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left. In your glory. You see, James and John got one thing right, but everything else they got wrong. You see, they are correct. Jesus is heading for his glory. But as for how that glory would come, they have no idea. They still don't get it. You see, they need a lesson in what discipleship actually is. You see, Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 and 21 reveals that James and John uh, weren't like they, they sent their mom to go do their bidding. Possibly Jesus' aunt, which would make James and John his cousins. Peter's cut out, along with all the other disciples. And their request, notice that what they're asking for, this is true of us, reveals what they actually don't understand. It also reveals their selfishness. You see, Jesus had promised these 12 apostles in Matthew chapter 19 that they would sit on 12 thrones with him in glory. Now, just think about this for a minute. You're with Jesus, king of the world. He says, you guys... You're going to sit with me on thrones. You're going to rule and reign with me. And two of you think, eh, can we have the best seats? You see, it wasn't enough. They wanted the two most honored thrones. Their request is for the best seats in the house in the kingdom. You see, their request reveals their superficial understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, to be his disciple. It also uh, reveals their inflated opinion of their own importance. And it shows their wrongheadedness on how God actually measures greatness. You see, being a servant goes against our human inclinations. It's counter to what we actually think of ourselves. Like, right, it, it, we, we preach all the time, we teach all the time that we should be humble. And, and I know you walk out of here and you walk into your marketplace, into your job site, and you're like, yeah, I know pastor said... Be humble, but that guy over there, he's an idiot. I'm smarter than him. I'm better at this job than him. I'm not going to be a servant. I know what Pastor said, but that guy's a fool. See, being a servant goes against what's natural to us, it goes against what we think about ourselves. You see, we know who we are, we know what we have done, we know what we deserve. It's just why it's so important. You see, the culture at large today, especially in, in, in business schools of thought and things like this, they actually teach this kind of stuff. Like, like they take just enough Jesus, 
uh, and what he said, because I think it's a good idea, right? There's this whole movement within corporations uh, called servant leadership. And it's a good thing. It's a, it's a godly thing. But, but it's, it's operated, it's motivated by self-gain. You see, what Jesus is actually calling people here to, to this being a servant of one another, after Jesus is, is only possible by the Spirit indwelling within us. Right? That's why whole corporations where they try to say, yeah, we're, we're all servant leaders here, they just make a mess of things. Because they're trying to do it out of their own human nature. Living this way is only possible by the Spirit of God dwelling in your heart and your willful obedience to His calling. Verse 38, look at this with me. It says, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, Yep, we good. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit in my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who, for whom it has been prepared. Notice Jesus' response, gentle but firm, gracious but direct in his response. He compares his pro- approaching suffering and death right, to this idea of drinking a cup and experiencing a baptism. These are, these are interesting uh, and powerful metaphors. You see, drinking a cup with someone often speaks of sharing in that person's faith, experiencing what they're experiencing, going where they are going. You see, oftentimes throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the cup was also a common picture of the wrath of God in judgment. Similarly, Jesus' passion and death was a baptism. His being overwhelmed, flooded, immersed in the destiny planned for him by his Father. See, the cross of Christ was a divine appointment. And Jesus understood that this was the will of God for his life. And yet still he struggled with it, right? Remember the night of Gethsemane? He's in the garden. He's, he, what's he say? He says, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but you will. And in Luke 12, 50, he says, but I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how it consumes me until it is finished. Notice, like, they, they say, yeah, yeah, we can do all of that. This too quick answer makes plain that they have no idea what's about to happen. And Jesus reveals that they are in, indeed going to experience something similar. But not at this time. You see, James would be the first of the apostles to actually be martyred. We read about that in Acts chapter 12. John would experience alone the great persecution and be exiled to Patmos, Revelation chapter 1. But to choose who sits on his right or left is a decision for God the Father. It was not the kind of question those who actually sit in those chairs would ask. Sadly, James and John fail to see the pathway to glory is always the pathway of suffering. Before the crown, there is a cup of suffering. Before the blessings that flow, there is a baptism that overwhelms and drowns. We must consider, think of the challenge of servanthood. If we're going to understand rightly what Christ is calling you and I to. Notice next that we must think of the conflict of servanthood. Look at verse 41. When the ten heard it, right? Like these two cats, they must have jumped out to the front whispered to Jesus, I don't know, Jesus says, all 12 of y'all in here, let me explain to you how this actually works. The 10 look at him like, James and John just do that. 
What about us? When the ten heard it, verse 41, they, became, they began to be indignant at James and John. Ten are angry because the two, uh, at the two because of their request and probably because they hadn't thought of it first. Jesus steps in again and uses this occasion for his most powerful lesson on being a servant, on being great in God's kingdom. Listen, it's hard. It's a hard lesson to learn. It just doesn't make any sense to them. By earthly standards, self-promotion is always right. By heavenly standards, it could not be more wrong. Look at verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Listen, among you, the church even. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. You see, the lost world out there is driven by selfish ambition and a lust for power and position. And they do this by lording it over people, right? You see this daily in your workplaces. They exercise authority over them. You see, in the world, the more important you are, the more are the people who serve you. Jesus says, but it must not be so. Like, this should not be the way it works. In his world, the more important you are, the more people you will end up serving. Jesus opposes the mindset of the world, and so must you and I. Verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Think about it. If you want to be great, if you want to do something great for God, If you want your life to count, if you want your life to please God and honor Christ, here's what he says. Become a servant. Become a slave. Right? right? A a common table waiter. A household servant. Become a slave. Such a person, would this person will have the mind of Christ is stemming others better than himself, not giving attention to their own interests, but to those of others. You see, Jesus here reverses again, as he did in chapter 9, all ideas of greatness, turning the world's philosophy upside down. I think about this. Some of you are about to embark on, on beginning of career journeys, Some of you, a couple years out, some of you are ending your careers. Some of you have left the marketplace a long time ago. And and as you are kind of winding down the last back half of your life, perhaps you've asked yourself, did my life count? Will my life count? Does my life count right now? Listen, Jesus says, if you want to be great, if you want to matter, then you must become a servant. You must become a slave And so the question for us is, do we agree? Do we believe it? Do we think we can achieve greatness some other way? How many of us will answer the call to yes to this kind of life? Listen, it will be a battle. And to the watching world, it doesn't make sense. Like, why should you live like this? Look at verse 45. It's the ground for how we should live, why we should live like this. For or because even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life 
a ransom for many. Jesus has told us where he's headed. He's headed to Jerusalem, there to die. And now he tells us why. You see, Jesus makes the promise that no other religious leader in all the world has made or could make. Jesus came to serve you and me. See, Jesus wasn't just our example, but, but, but he was and is our ransom. William Lane said it like this, The reversal of all human ideas of greatness and rank was achieved when Jesus came, not to be served, but to serve. John Piper says in Mark 10, 20, 1045 is what turns Christianity into the gospel. Like, think, uh, before we jump in, let me just make a few observations, theological observations, things to keep you from heresy here. There's no thought in all the scriptures that when Jesus says he was the ransom, that he was the ransom to be paid to Satan. That's what the world, like some, some aspects of Christianity would have you think that, that Satan held you bound and so therefore Christ had to pay Satan off somehow. That's not what's happening here. You see, at the cross, Satan received only one thing. His defeat. His ruin. The price Christ paid was not taken from him either. Hebrews 12, 2 says it like this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was the great giver. Look, he, he wasn't a victim. We're talking our day about victims. Jesus was not a victim. He willingly laid down his life. He says it like this, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. Father, For even, right, the verse opens, For even emphasizes the remarkable humility and service of one who should by all rights be honored and served. Right, if you think in your life of people who, like, you should honor who you should serve, like think of the great people in your life. These people pale in comparison to Jesus Christ. They pale in comparison to Jesus Christ. And yet, it is Jesus Christ, the most honored and the most uh, highest person that we can think of, came not to serve, but came not to be served, but to serve. Look, he, he calls himself the Son of Man, right? This is a title that Jesus gives to himself more than any other title. It radically redefines who and what the Messiah would be when he, when he weds the Son of Man up with this ransom for many. You see, Jesus is the suffering Messiah. He's a servant Messiah. He's the man for all men and the man from heaven. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Think of who this man actually is. The Son of God, who existed eternally with the Father as the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of of his nature, taking on human nature. It's about the birth of a man by a virgin conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit so that he is the Son of God in an utterly unique way. It's about the coming of a man named Jesus in whom all the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell. It's about the coming of the fullness of time that had been prophesied by the prophets of old, that a ruler would be born in Bethlehem. A child would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, a Messiah, an anointed one, a shoot from the stem of Jesse, a son of David. A king would come, and the Son of Man would come, who did not come to be served, 
but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And if he serves, we must serve. We must give. If if Jesus, the, the greatest man to ever live, would stoop down, then we must stoop down. C.J. Mahaney says, ultimately our Christian service exists only to draw attention to this source, to our crucified and risen Lord who gave himself as the ransom for us all. In verse 45, we see that Jesus came, right? So Tim Keller says that this is the strongest text in which we can say that Jesus existed before he was born. He came to give his life. No one takes it. Right? Jesus did not have to die despite God's love. He died because of God's love. The cross is a self-substitution of God himself for you and I. He came to give his life as a ransom. This is what theologians often call the wonderful exchange. This ransom means to deliver by purchase. It means a payment, usually of money, required to release someone from punishment or slavery. Listen, you and I needed ransomed. Because we had all gladly and willfully sold ourselves into the bondage of slavery to sin. You see, when Jesus purchased us, our slave masters, sin, death, hell, and Satan had to set us free. First Peter says it like this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the, in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, ransom speaks of Jesus' substitutionary atonement, his sacrificial death on the cross purchased the release from bondage of you, and I, and of all sinners who would ever believe in him. This ransom was not directed to the devil, but to the Father. Righteousness demanded it. Love provided it. And we were then adopted into a new family. Galatians 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. We had run away like fools and sold ourselves into slavery. Jesus sees, he knows our pitiful, hopeless situation, pays this ransom and redeems us out of slavery and brings us into the Father's house. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, full atonement can it be, hallelujah, What a Savior. The greatest and best person who ever lived and walked on this earth was a humble servant. He got low so that he might lift others up. And you and I are called to this same life. But we need to understand something. Because if you walk out of here today and you say, well, you know, Pastor said, I got to go serve, so let me go. Try to serve as best I can. Because that's what God requires. Then you don't really understand service. 
understand that God does not need served. He doesn't, he doesn't need you. He doesn't need your service, as a matter of fact. Now, I know some of you in here thinking, he needs me. He doesn't. Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Like if you walk out of here thinking, like, ah, you know, Pastor said I gotta serve, so let me just go ahead and serve. Like, like, you're not serving in order to get something from God. Like, like God can't be served by you. Like, like, think about this. God is never for one moment of every uh, of any time before there was time or after time will be needed anything from anybody anywhere at all times. Never needed anything from anybody anywhere at any time. He is everything. He created everything, the world and everything in it. Like right now, Jesus Christ, right now, right now, is ruling and reigning the universe without a sweat, a drop of sweat on his head. He needs no service from you. And yet, he calls us into it. So how do we do this? If God doesn't require service, and yet he calls us to service, how how do we walk this out, Pastor? We serve by believing what he said. We serve God by simply trusting in his word and walking by faith. You see, the righteous shall walk by faith. So we do not serve out of our own power. We do not serve in order to, to get something And we do not serve in order so that God may get something. We serve because we believe in his word. Like, think about it. Go back to that co-worker earlier who's a fool. You know everything better than him. We all have him. And you think tomorrow morning when you walk into work, I'm not going to serve that guy. I'm not going to be a servant. Remember, we serve not to get. We don't serve, and so, like, like there's a, a world in which you say, I'm going to serve this guy so I can get a raise, or, or people can see how good I am. No, 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 we, we walk in, and we see the guy who doesn't know how to do his job, and we serve them. Because we realize that you and I, we have been served. Like, you and I are the fools at work. And Jesus walks in. And he says, man, let me help you. Let me serve you. 1 Peter 4.11, I'll end with this. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Listen, you and I serve out of the love that God has given us. This often looks like we are going to be the losers in all deals. All business transactions, we will be like the ones coming up on the short end of the stick. 
And yet, this is the way God has ordered the world to work. Because he came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. And so we leave this place to serve. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, this is hard work. So often we, we view ourselves as better than those around us because we know ourselves and we, we think we're better than we are. Father, there is not a person in the world that we should feel like we do not need to serve. Lord, I pray you would embolden us to become servants and slaves to those around us because we know that you have served us. So Father, we pray, Lord, as we leave here today, you would help us, embolden us with the Spirit. Lord, give us what we need to walk out into a a lost and dying world and to love them like you would love them. This is how the love of Christ is shown to those around us. Father, we pray you help us. In Jesus' name, amen.